could be a little bigger if uh, some of you would want to join in, let us know. Uh, but um, you guys do a great job. Thank you, Rick, for your leadership um, and team for your participation and help and support all these weeks. Uh, sometimes, you know, they get done and I think, I, I just need to sit down. We need to sing some more. <laughs> but um, nevertheless... <laughs> Nevertheless, I'm going to go ahead and do this message. <laughs> I'm going to be off next week, so I'm going to take my opportunity while I can get it. Um, but th this morning, we're going to be in uh, the book of Mark, uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. We're going to wrap up chapter 4. We're going to buzz all the way through chapter 5 this morning, and we're going to see Jesus give magnificent demonstrations of power and a and an incredible testimony to his disciples and all around as to who he is. And he's going to take Mark's claim at the beginning of the book, you remember? The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's going to take a big highlighter and underline that that is his identity. That I am the Messiah, the Son of God. And we're going to see this. And it's going to be an amazing thing. You're going to see Jesus... Uh, have exercised his lordship over the wind and the waves and over demons, over even disease and death. Nothing stands apart from the lordship of Christ. And yet we're also going to see, I'll just let you in on the, on the end here at the beginning. We're also going to see that even though Jesus is lord over all of creation, that he never asserts his lordship over individual people, he invites us to accept him as king. And that's a really interesting thing to me, because even though Jesus makes everything else obey, he invites us to obey and follow. Uh, let's, let's look here. The end of Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35, and follow along here as I go all the way through chapter 5. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. And a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. His disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? You still have no faith. They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerizines, and when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him and shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, 
for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hills, nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs, and the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him, and Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus was there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and earnestly pleaded with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. The large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus... She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. And at this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, here at the end of chapter 4, as we get started, uh, we see Jesus on the uh, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is this freshwater lake at the northern part of Israel that flows down the Jordan River into the Dead Sea, which is 
salt water that nothing lives in. Um, but this this little fresh this freshwater lake, which is a big lake, uh, they're on one side of it. They're probably in Capernaum. There's crowds that are gathered all around, and so Jesus, to get a little bit away from the crowd and to be able to speak, is sitting in a boat teaching, and he has spent the day teaching there in Capernaum. And if you're out on the water, you know how how your voice carries out across the water really well, and 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 so it's an ideal spot and an ideal way to teach. And especially in the day before microphones, uh, his voice would carry off, off the water to the people, and they could all hear. But at the end of the day, he's tired, and so they're going to take a, uh, a cruise across the water uh, over to the other side, which is a Gentile area. Um, it's, there's a few Jews there, but it's a primarily Gentile area, and they're going to sail to the other side. And while they're in the boat, Jesus is so whipped that he lays down in the back of the boat on a cushion and goes immediately to sleep. Now, that's tired. Uh, I've been so tired, sometimes I have fell asleep sitting up uh, in a chair. You know, you sit down in a chair, and all of a sudden you've got that kind of, you know, jello neck head bob going on, and then all of a sudden you're just chin to your chest and asleep, right? Jesus is that level of tired. And we know that he's that level of tired because while he's asleep, this storm comes up, and it's bad enough storm that it's swamping the boat, and Jesus is still asleep. And these storms on the Sea of Galilee can be ferocious because the entire lake, if you, you've seen the geography of the place, is surrounded by these high hills with these narrow valleys in between. And those little valleys that are little skinny little things allow the wind to blow through there like a wind tunnel. And so when this storm comes up, it's a bad one. And we know also that it's bad because a lot of these guys are fishermen, you know, they've they, they grew up on this lake. This is not their first time in a boat. They understand what a storm is. They know how, how to handle this. But they're in this storm, and it's bad. And yet, there sits Jesus asleep in the back. <laughs> okay. Um, it's probably maybe hard for some of you to think about Jesus snoring, but that's probably what he's doing. Uh, he's, he's cutting up some lumber in the back of the boat. And... And they're going, man, we're going to die here. This storm is bad. This is really bad. Somebody go wake up Jesus because, you know, they've seen Jesus do a variety of things. They think maybe Jesus can help here. (laughs) And they wake him up and they say, don't you care if we drown? And Jesus, you know, kind of wakes up and says, he stands up and he says to the wind and the waves, be quiet. And the wind stops and the waves die down. And then he turns to them and he says something really interesting. Why are you still afraid? Do you still have no faith? In other words, don't you know yet who I am? Don't you know who I am, disciples? You've been with me. You've seen all this stuff. You've seen the man with the shriveled hand get healed. You've seen uh, demons cast out. You've seen sicknesses. You've seen a paralyzed man that lowered through the roof, get up and walk out the door. Don't you know yet? Don't you get it, who I am? And they don't. 
As I've said before, one of the reasons I'm convinced that the Gospels are true and what they say about Jesus is that the portrayal we get of the people who wrote them is not very flattering a lot of times, right? And when you're making up history, you tend to put yourself in a better light than what you would otherwise be. And yet when you see the disciples, they're confused. They have no idea. And in fact, they're a little bit scared. They've just seen this guy. They woke up from a dead sleep, stand up and say, be quiet, be still. And all of a sudden the wind quits. And the waves get still and the water gets flat. And they say, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey this man. What kind of a person can command the wind and the waves to obey? Only God. And yet, he's clearly a man, right? I mean, he got tired to a point that he needed to sleep. But what kind of a person is this? Jesus is going to give them yet more evidence that's going to confirm and underline his identity here. In fact, he's going to give it to them in just a few minutes when they get over to the other side. They're going to get to this area. Uh, this, the, my Bible says the region of the Gerizines. Uh, there's debate on exactly where they are. There are two towns on the other side of the lake. One is called Gadara, and the other is called Gazera. <laughs> okay. Um, there's a difference between those two, the spelling of those two places of two letters, but all the other letters are the same. And so some manuscripts read one way, some the other. Um, I think he's at Gezera. <laughs> okay, not that it matters, but when he gets there, uh, this is the town that's right on the other side of the Sea of Galilee that's today known as Gerza. Um, and when he gets there, there this, he meets this, this guy that comes out of the tombs who is demon-possessed. And this fellow is incredible. I mean, these tombs that they, that uh, in those days when they buried people, what they did was they, have, they would have a, a, like a cave, a, a rock tomb that they would carve out, and they would put a rock over it, and they would wait until the, the flesh decomposed, and then they would go in like a year later and collect the bones and put them in an ossuary, you know, a bone box. And then they put that bone box in the family crypt. So normally these tombs uh, are empty. And so if you're nuts, this is a good place to live uh, in one of these caves. And this is where this demon-possessed man is living. And he is, Mark says, so strong that they can't bind the guy even with chains. Now, I don't know how strong that is, but it's a lot stronger than me. A lot stronger, I would guess, than any of you. But he's able to take the iron shackles on his feet and just kind of, like Superman, just bend them off and take them off. That's a, that's a phenomenal level of power. And he meets Jesus and he falls down in front of him, not in worship, but in honor. Because even demons recognize their Lord when he shows up. In fact, they say... What do you want with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now, normally, Jesus did not let the demons identify him. But here, it's just him and the disciples and this man out on the edge of town among the tombs. 
And they say, the demons, speaking through the man, say, swear to God that you won't torture me. Jesus has been saying, come out of this man, you evil spirit. And what they're asking is that Jesus not send them already to eternal punishment, to the lake of fire, which would have been Jesus' right to do for the way that they were oppressing this man. And they're begging not to go out there. And, he's, and so Jesus says, what is your name? And they say, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, let me tell you how many a many is. Okay? A Roman legion is 6,000 troops. 6,000 troops. Uh, I don't know that that, nece- that necessarily means that there are 6,000 demons within this man, but there's more than two by a lot. Uh, in fact, there are so many that later when Jesus allows them to go into the herd of pigs, there's 2,000 pigs that go rushing over the cliff. So at least that many, one for each hog, uh, and it doesn't do the pigs any good at all, right? Um, uh, apparently being possessed by a demon does not do anything good for anybody, right? I don't know what it's like, never have experienced it, but but it's but it's a real thing, and it really happened to this man. And he has thousands of demons within him. And he orders the demons out. And what's impressive about this is that is not just is not just how many there are, but that a word from Jesus, they flee. And they ask him for permission to go somewhere else. They ask him for permission to go into these pigs. And the picture that's presented is like having a big, nasty, gnarly, vicious dog that is a big problem for everybody except the person who has control over it. And Jesus comes into these to in front of these demons and for everybody else this man has been uncontrollable and Jesus says you out and they have to go 2000 demons 6000 demons we don't know how many thousand there were but however many there were they all split when Jesus says split powerful and, of course, the guys who are hurting these pigs watch all this happen. And what would you do? They beat feet back to town and tell everybody, you won't believe what just happened. You know Crazy Phil, um, <laughs> who has all the demons? <laughs> um, they just left. Where'd they go? Into our pigs. What happened to the pigs? Well, they went all uh, crashing over the hill like lemmings. Really? Hmm. We got to come see this. So they all come out. Everybody in town comes out to see Jesus. And when they get there, they see this demon possessed man, or the man who'd formerly been demon possessed, sitting in front of Jesus in his right mind. And notice the reaction that they have. They don't go, Wow, that's great. <laughs> Welcome, Jesus. I'm so glad you're here. They go, um, You know, you wouldn't mind leaving, would you? 
And that's a really fascinating reaction. As I said, Jesus exercises his authority over creation like that. But when it comes down to human beings, he invites people to receive his lordship, but he never forces them. And so when they ask him to leave, what does he do? He leaves. Okay. You don't want me? Fine. And they're scared, I think. But I think they're also a little concerned about the economic losses they've just suffered from these pigs. But they're, they don't want him around. So, so he leaves. He gets back in the boat. And, of course, the formerly demon-possessed man wants to go with. Well, <laughs> I don't want to stay. I want to go and, um, and, and be with you. You're the man who healed me. And Jesus says, no, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And so this guy goes all over. There are ten cities uh, in, on the other side of the Jordan that are called the Decapolis, uh, the ten cities. And he's going like itinerant preaching <laughs> around. You know, you heard about me, Crazy Phil, who used to live over among the tombs in, in Gezerah? Okay. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not nuts anymore. Uh, the demons have left. I got rid of them all. What happened? Jesus cast them out. Tremendous power. He's spreading the word about what God had done for him, just as Jesus asked. And, of course, when they get back on the other side, uh, there are more problems that people are in. And, and when they get back to the other side, I, I think, again, in Capernaum, uh, a ruler of one of the synagogues comes, and his name is Jairus, and he comes and he says, Jesus, my daughter is sick, she's dying, come help. And Jesus says, okay, fine, I'm coming. Now remember, he's tired. He was asleep in the boat. Got over to the other side. Uh, we don't want you here. Okay, well, back to the other side of the lake. But Jesus is filled with compassion for this man and his daughter, and so he goes along with him. And as he's walking, there's this big crowd that's packed in tight around him. And in the middle of that crowd is this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. Now, that in itself is a bad thing. You've been, if you've been sick for a while, it's a bummer. If you've been sick like this, uh, it's life-altering for a Jewish woman. If you were a Jewish woman and you had any kind of, well, a Jewish person, uh, and you had any kind of discharge or whatever coming out of your body that should not be, you were excluded from worship. You were considered ceremonially unclean. You could not go to the temple and offer sacrifice to God. And if you were a woman, uh, if it was your uh, monthly cycle, you were excluded from worship. Uh, if you had just had a baby, you were excluded from worship. Uh, and you were excluded uh, as being ceremonially, ceremonially unclean until a period of purification had passed. And so for a woman to have this kind of a disorder for this long means that she is ceremonially unclean and cannot go to the temple. But it's worse than that. Anything that she touches or sits on or... Um, any person that she touches is also rendered ceremonially unclean and unable to go to worship. 
And so this is a life-altering disorder. And, and that's why I think she says, if I can just touch his clothes, because she, she doesn't want to actually touch the man himself, because that will make him unclean, and he's a rabbi, and she knows he's a holy man, so she doesn't want to do that. But it's, she's like, I just touched just a little bit of his clothes, and I know that that will be good enough to heal me. And people are wanted in around Jesus, and I mean, they're going to Jairus' house, and, and she finds her way through this crowd, and she touches just Jesus' clothes, and immediately she's healed and cleansed. And Jesus says, who touched me? And his brilliant disciples all stand around and go, dude, seriously? <laughs> who touched me? There's like 500 people around us in this crowd, and you want to know which one of them ran into you? Come on. But Jesus is not talking about who just happens to be around. He's talking about who reached out to him in faith, believing in who he is. Now, you're this woman. You know that to touch this rabbi is to make him unclean. So you're fearful. You don't want to be embarrassed in front of everybody. But eventually, Jesus won't give it up. And so she finally comes forward and says, it was me. And what she's expecting, because she has gotten condemnation, I think, for a long time from everybody, is for Jesus to say, how dare you? Don't you realize now I have to go through ceremonial ceremonial cleansing and all that but he doesn't say that look at the word he uses he says daughter very respectful term your faith has healed you go in peace and be freed from your suffering in other words i just wanted to be able to talk to you and bless you for your faith but imagine you're gyrus and this is all your daughter is dying and this is all very well, you know, this woman has been healed and all that, but you're taking up time. Jesus, we're burning daylight. My daughter's dying. Come on. And about that time, uh, people come from Jairus' house and say, uh, Jairus, don't bother the, the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. In other words, obviously he can't do anything now. Maybe if he had hurried, maybe if he had not taken time with this woman... Maybe he could have healed her later and dealt with your daughter who was more, has a more immediate pressing need. Jesus turns to him says, I love that, how Mark says it. It says, ignoring what they said. <laughs> Jesus turns to Jairus and he says, don't be afraid, just believe. And he goes to Jairus' house and he, there's a big commotion. He takes the three closest disciples to him. Uh, Peter, James, and John, the three that were the, his tightest friends. And he takes these three guys and Jairus and Jairus' wife, child's mother, and the, the five of them, along with Jesus, go into this room. And I, as they're on their way, he sees all the mourners, you know. And, and, and in those days, they had both um, family people who would be mourning, but they also would hire professional mourners to come in and cry, just in case there were not quite enough tears at the death. Uh, and so they've got all the people mourning, and it's it's this terrible scene. And Jesus comes in, and he says, 
knock it off. The child's not dead. She's just asleep. And Mark says they laughed at him. And I think they're laughing not in, not thinking that it's amusing, but in derision. And saying, what kind of an idiot, what kind of a callous person says that to grieving people? She's not dead, she's asleep. What's wrong with you? Jesus goes in. And he doesn't go through some big elaborate ceremony or say some magic words or anything. He just takes the girl by the hand and says, little girl, I say to you, get up. She gets up. And she wants a snack. Give the girl some potato chips, will you? I mean, <laughs> I mean, Jesus does this like it's an ordinary thing. You know, we watch these medical shows sometimes on TV, you know, and they, they go, stat, you know, code blue, and they bring in the pedals and they, you know, all that, right? And, and it's like, woo, you know, they, they pulled through, you know, amazing, okay? Jesus just walks over to this girl and says, come on, sweetie, get up. And, oh, by the way, I think she's hungry. Would you give her a snack? <laughs> I mean, does that not just strike anybody else as odd? That Jesus just does this like it's just normal? It doesn't require great exertions of effort on Jesus' part to make this happen. He just does it. Because he, again, proves that he is Lord. He's Lord. Now, here's the question. This, this passage is really all about, okay? Jesus is Lord over nature, right? If you can command the wind and the waves, if you can command the demonic realm, if you can command sickness and death, to do your will, then you are a unique individual indeed, right? Jesus is Lord. He, he backs up his claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God. He is proving over and over who he is. Jesus is Lord. But the question is, is Jesus Lord over you? Lord over nature, Lord over the spiritual realm, Lord over disease and death. Is he Lord over you? Because, you know, the, the amazing thing about Jesus is that while one day there will be a day when every person who has ever lived stands before God and bows their knee either in worship or in subjection to Jesus. In the here and now, Jesus does not say, you must honor me as Lord. Now he says, will you honor me as Lord? So let me ask you just a few, a few things here. Um, is Jesus your Lord? Let's, let's just play this out a little bit. Uh, and I'm going to use parts of the body because I think this is... Uh, maybe a good way of getting at this. Is Jesus Lord over your tongue? Does your speech bring glory to God? Not just publicly, 
but privately. When you're with your family or your close friends, or you get in the car after you've had a hard day at work and you shut the door. Is Jesus Lord over your tongue then? Do you gossip, slander, or lie, or belittle, or mock, or boast, or curse with your tongue? Is Jesus Lord over your tongue? Accepting Jesus as Lord includes accepting his right to rule over this part of your body. Uh, as James says, uh, can, can a spring bring forth both fresh water and salt? No. And out of the same, yet out of the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. Such things should not be. Right? Not if Jesus is Lord over your tongue. How about this? Is Jesus Lord over your eyes and ears? Uh, is Jesus Lord over what you take in? To your, to your mind. Uh, we take things in mostly through our eyes and ears, right? What we allow ourselves to see and watch, what we allow ourselves to hear. I'm not, I'm not a legalist in terms of, you know, oh, you shouldn't watch TV. If you're a Christian, you should never go to a movie or any of that, okay? But I do think that those decisions matter. And that you can either bring honor and praise to God in what you allow your eyes to see and your ears to hear, or dishonor. And if Jesus is Lord over you and over me, then these decisions matter. Have you considered what you allow your eyes to see and your, and your ears to hear? Does it glorify God or not? Uh, does your iPod reflect the fact that Jesus rules over your life? If not, the question is, why not? Right? Does your DVR list, you know, I've got that DVR thing that records TV, so I don't have to watch it live. I can fast forward through the commercials, right? Uh, does the stuff that's on that list Reflect the, flat, the fact that you belong to God. Uh, let me ask another question. Is Jesus Lord over your body? Is Jesus uh, Lord over the places that your feet carry you and the things that your hands touch? Do these things honor and reflect the fact that you obey the Lord's commands? Uh, is your body in total, in other words, uh, brought under submission to the fact that, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, you are not your own, you are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Those of you who are single, this is tough. You honor God with your body. Those of you who are married, you honor God with your body. Uh, how about this one? This is the last one. Is Jesus Lord over your mind and your heart? Jesus says that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. In other words, if what comes out of your mouth is polluted, it's because what is in your heart is polluted also. That it wells up out of a wickedness in who you are. You don't sin because you don't, you don't 
you're not a sinner because you sin. You are you sin because you're a sinner. <laughs> I don't know if that's totally confusing, but it's because of what you are that you do what you do. In other words, and if we want, um, if we want different output, we have to change the inside. Right, the heart has to change. The mind has to change. Uh, as Paul wrote in another place in Romans chapter 12, uh, do not be conformed, in other words, don't be squeezed into the mold of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? Is Jesus Lord over your mind and heart? If sin and darkness still lurks in your mind and in your heart, it's because you have not submitted those areas to the Lordship of Christ. Let's pray.